Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together and study. And we ask that your spirit will join us and our minds will be enlightened and we will be refreshed by being with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly health and healing. And the lesson title this week is celebrating spiritual and physical fitness. And somebody read for us 2 Timothy 4.7 right at the top of Sunday's lesson. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. When you hear that text, I have fought the good fight. Finished the course. Kept the faith. What fight? What fight has been fought? What is it? What do you think? He says she's had the battle of good and evil. Can you think of any text that would have bearing on fighting that good fight? Anything come to mind? One of my favorite texts, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. They, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So spiritual warfare. This is a fight against principalities and powers of darkness. a fight that takes place where? In the mind. This is where we're fighting, in the mind. Fought the good fight. What course do you think he was on? It says the fought the good fight, finished my course. My course. Kept the faith. You thought about the meaning. What, what's this, what's, what is this? What do you think is the greatest opponent that you have to fight in this fight? Look at how bright you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. Steps to Christ, page 43. Let me read this to you. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. So, obviously you guys agree. Is this the greatest battle you've had to fight in your life? James, we read, we read in the last class, um, no one should say God is tempting because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted or drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Is that the same thing as this fighting against self? It's both the same, isn't it? Yeah. So, any examples? Anyone going to give some examples? How about this? If you are in high school, hanging out with your friends, and they are all smoking and pressuring you to smoke, where is your battle? Tell me how it's with yourself. Why is your battle not with your friends? What are you fighting with with yourself? I agree with you. It is. I agree with you. Okay, so you're having a battle to try to perceive and understand what's actually happening. You have this idea, these are my friends. Will friends, what's the old saying? Friends won't let friends drive drunk. Will friends offer friends cigarettes to smoke? Yes. If you really want what's best for the friend, if, you really, if they're really a friend, if you want them to be healthy, you want them to be happy, if you want them to be free of addiction. If, if, so, so the perception here, battling to understand the truth. I think these are my friends. I want them to like me. But they're offering me cigarettes and trying to get me to smoke. Or they're offering me alcohol. They're offering me drugs. Or, or they're trying to get me in bed. Or whatever else it might be. Um, are they your friend if they're trying to do this? No. Oh, what if they know if you're on a diet and they make you a great big chocolate cake? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Boy, she says, that ain't right. No. No, that ain't right. You said that exactly right. No, it ain't. Um, So, but where's the battle? If they offer you the big chocolate cake, if they're offering you the cigarette, is the battle with the person? There is the perception of understanding whether they're really your friend or not. But still, where where is the pressure coming from for you to take that cigarette? Your own what? Good judgment thinking, boy, that's going to make me healthier. My mom would be proud. I'll be able to worship God better. I mean, is that where it's coming from? Where's the pressure coming from? Emotions or desires. What kind of emotions exactly? Fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of loneliness. Fear of abandonment. Fear of being laughed at. Internal to yourself, you have fear. And it is your fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... Notice, those fears are part of the infection of sin. Perfect love casts out all... Fear. God wants to free us from this fear. But notice the battle we fight with is a battle not with those people who are offering us cigarettes. But when they offer cigarettes, it stirs up certain emotions in us, certain fears, certain fears. When they offer us that chocolate cake, it might not be fear at that point. It might be, I love chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And boy. Never having chocolate cake. Never having chocolate. If I never have, I might never get chocolate cake again. Oh, I'll hurt their feelings. I don't want to hurt their feelings. They've made this for me, and so all these, all the. And notice what's happening. Where's our battle? Is it with them? Is it with self? How about this one? If someone calls you bad names, ugly, rude, unkind, insults you, vulgar. Where's your battle? Where's your battle? Uh, example, as some of you know, it's in my book. See, Look in the parking lot, see a 40-year-old man cursing at a 5-year-old little girl, calling her every foul name you've ever heard. If our whole class looked out the window right now and saw that, and I mean, spit coming out of his mouth, face is red, cursing at this little girl, do we look at that and go, what a horrible little girl? How many of us would think that? How many of us would think, whatever's going on, that man has serious problems? What does a little girl walk away feeling like? That she's horrible. That she, is she? No. How many times do we act like that little girl? We're in situations, somebody laughs at us, somebody curses us, somebody treats us meanly, somebody's unkind, somebody's rude, and we walk away feeling bad about ourselves. Nobody likes me. People don't want me to hang around. And it makes us either hurt, sullen, depressed, or angry, or all of the above. Where's our battle? Where's our battle? How do we win that battle? What's the victory? What sets us free? The truth. See, if you watch that happening to somebody else, it's very easy. How about your own church, Sabbath morning? Let's say you go to visit a church Sabbath morning at some other church. And you walk in and you happen to be vacationing and you forgot to bring your Sabbath clothes. All you have are jean shorts and a shirt. And so you go with jean shorts and a shirt to church on Sabbath. Is that some head shaking right there? Why are you shaking your head no? Yeah, well, what, what might happen if you were to show up at some church like that on Sabbath morning? What could happen? What's, what might happen? 
So he said, okay, the whip, okay? So an 85-year-old matriarch of the church meets you in the lobby and goes, how dare you come to the house of the Lord dressed like that? What are you thinking? Don't you know better, young man? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, if that happens, how might you feel? Would you want to stay in worship? Would you feel like you want to run out? Now, let's take it and put it from a slightly different angle. Let's change our angle on this. You're at your own home church, where you've been, grown up, raised, you're comfortable, you know everybody, and a visitor walks in you've never seen before, in jean shorts and that same shirt. And one of the matriarchs of the church hits that visitor in the lobby and starts, yeah, 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 and you're watching that. Are you thinking, yeah, go get her, sister? Or are you thinking, man, that woman needs to shut up? What are you thinking as you're watching it? Are you thinking that that person shouldn't be in your church and, she, and this person deserves the tongue lashing they're getting? Or are you thinking that that woman is completely out of line? What are you thinking? Do you notice when it's happening to you, you get emotions that are very powerful. And those powerful emotions often blind us to see the world accurately. We fight against our own desires, our own... Yes? We've made it so important to look nice to come to church that people don't come because they don't have nice clothes or they don't want to have to get dressed up and be beautiful before they come to church. I think sometimes we put way too much emphasis on that and actually keep people away because we have to look nice on Sabbath. Do you think there's truth in that? Yeah. And you probably should get up when you see that and say, come on over here and sit with me. Oh, yes. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, hey, sister, they're, they're with me today. I'm so... Hey, I'm glad you wore what I told you to wear. <laughs> If you're out on a date and your date tries to take the relationship farther on a physical level than you're comfortable with, where's your battle? Now, I guess there's the potential they could try to physically overcome you. You might have a physical battle with somebody who's trying to rape you. That's a possibility. But let's say that's not going on. No physical force. Just trying to seduce you into voluntarily giving in. Where's your battle? With yourself. Notice the battle is with ourself. Um, what if your child says this to you? I thought you loved me. But every time I want to do something, you say no. You don't love me. If you'd love me, you'd let me go. Any, anybody ever heard that? I see, look at all the parents' heads nodding around this room. This is like really common stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So, but when that happens, where's your battle? Where's your battle? Does that ever stir feelings up inside you? What kind of feelings get stirred up if your kid says that? What? Fear. Fear your kid may not love you. Fear your kid may be mad at you. They may pout. They may not... How about the fear that you're being too controlling? Or the fear you're being controlling. Self-doubt. Fears. Mm. So, what's the solution? How do you handle it? We got a lot of parental wisdom. How many parental how many years of parenting do we have in this room? <laughs> More than I've got. Yeah. I tell them they're right. You're right. I tell, I tell my kids, you're right, that other person's parents must love them way more than I love you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and what does that do? Burst that little bubble, doesn't it? It's like, oh, that's over. <laughs> Do you think they believe it to be true, or they think that uh, you're just that you're not playing their game? I think they're comfortable that I love them. Yeah, they know you love them, but you're not going to be bought into that little that little scam. Yeah. 
Yes. One of the things that you've taught us in this class very much, and that one of the things we need to pass on to our children is, if they want to do something that we don't agree with, the, the skill that they need to learn is to say, you know what, I'm not really understanding that. Could you apply some logic to evidence and show me how you came reasonably to that conclusion? And if you can, let's go with it. It's for the kids to do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's hard for a five-year-old, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I'm, not, I'm with you. I, no, I understand. I, I agree. I'm not dis- dis- disagreeing with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I think this is the path we want to help our kids to do. Constantly teach them how to think, reason, make healthy choices, and understand that sometimes they won't get there at the, during that conversation. <laughs> during that conversation, they won't get there. They will walk away not understanding, being mad. Yes. Decide to it. We don't often uh, see, and that's the sign that the kids actually want you to do something to show that you love them by keeping them hurting them. Did you all hear that just now? That's so important. He said there's a side to it that we often miss as parents, that the kids actually want us to restrain them, that they want us to say no, that they want us to set a boundary because they want to know that we care enough to hold them in check from hurting themselves. I think it's a great insight, and there's truth in that. This starts all the way back in infancy. And Remember your infants, 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 newborns. How did you, how, what did you have to do to get them to settle down and go to sleep? Ah, swaddle them. If you just, you had to swaddle them very tightly. If you just set them down and threw a blanket over them, would an infant go to sleep? No, they're going to kick and scream. Why? Anybody know why? Because yes, she said because they feel insecure. They just came out of a nice, cozy, safe, warm place with a nice little drum beat. Boom, boom. that just rhythmically put them to sleep all 24 hours a day, right? And now they're in this cold, scary, overwhelming world. Can an infant handle all the stressors going on in the world after they come out of mama's womb? No, it's scary. When you swaddle them, you reduce the size of the world back down to something that they feel safe with, and they go to sleep. Now, as they get older, this is a real boundary, a physical boundary. As they get older, as they've been growing, they move from the physical boundary of the blanket that you swallowed them in to your arms. And then shortly thereafter, it's your presence. And you watch the kids as they grow. They will play right around you. They'll run over, but they'll come back and check. They'll come back and check. They'll look around the corner. They're always checking. And then it's your rules, the rules that you set. And this is why consistency is so important. Because without consistency, this is what happens. If you're a consistent parent and you tell your child that they can play in the yard but they can't go outside the yard. In the child's psychology and emotional world, then the way they experience that is the same fence or boundary that keeps you from going out of the yard keeps the world from coming into the yard and harming them. They feel safe and secure. If you're inconsistent, though, then they feel vulnerable because they don't know where safety lies. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. You have a kid, first grader. You tell them you study really hard, get 100% on your spelling bee this week, I'll give you five bucks. Kid studies, studies, studies. Comes home. 100%. And you don't give them five dollars. What did you just teach them? Can't trust you. That's easy. Oh, yeah, I'll say that. So obvious. How about this? Tell your kid, if you don't pick your toys up out of the living room, put them in the toy box before dinner, you can't have dessert with the rest of the family. Dinner time comes, sit at the table, toys are still all over the living room. 
The end of, des- end of dinner, you go to serve dessert, put one on everybody's plate except that child. That child begins to wail and cry, make a big scene. And you go, okay, I'll let you have this as inter- dessert this time, but next time pick your toys up. What did you just teach your kid? That you don't keep your word and they can't trust you. Never set a boundary with a child you're not willing to enforce. If you don't enforce it, you teach them they can't trust you, and then they're more scared and anxious, they have more fear, and they act out more, looking for exactly what you say, for the place where it's safe, where it's predictable, where the universe is solid and, 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 and it makes them feel secure. Yes? There are some animal studies that seem to imply that the more intelligence you have, the more you check your boundaries, yeah, I think there's no question about that. You, you do check boundaries, and kids will check boundaries. So that's why I say never set a boundary that you're not willing to enforce, because kids will check them. They will test them, test the boundary. And if you're not willing to enforce it, then you're just setting yourself up to be distrusted because you're not going to actually do what you say. So I don't set boundaries that I'm not willing to enforce. Last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says, um, or second to the last paragraph, it says, from merely looking at their facial expressions, one easily can form... An incorrect impression of how much or little joggers, cyclists, and runners are enjoying themselves. It sometimes may appear that the whole endeavor is a punishment. Have you ever seen somebody exercising like this? Okay. There are, however, many benefits to persisting with an exercise program. These will be discussed later in the week. The benefits come from the determined application and discipline required to perform the exercise itself. There are certain rules to be adhered to. Regularity of exercise is essential. There must be a goal and sometimes even a prize. These principles apply both to spiritual and physical fitness. To be spiritually fit, we need to focus on Jesus. We need to read his word, pray, and meditate. There are many things that distract our attention. These may include good and noble causes, our work, studies, or even church activities, but we need to cast off the the activities and distractions that keep us from growing in grace and prioritize our goals if we are going to finish strong. Thoughts about this? Well, last week we talked about brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We talked about how decisions we make, exercising neural circuits, cause circuits to grow or not exercising cause them to not grow. Does that have any application to what this paragraph just said? That we have to choose to apply ourselves. If we apply ourselves, do we get changed in that process? Yeah. So, the question then, what can we do to actually help ourselves change in godly ways? Specific things. Specific activities that you can voluntarily choose to engage in that would have a positive transforming effect upon you. What do you think? Oh, did you hear what he said? Bam, right out of the bat. Help others help others. Uh, It's called altruism, giving of self. There is incredibly good science that when you help other people, that you get better physical health. You get activation of a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, where you experience compassion and empathy. It calms or turns off the amygdala, the fear centers. You get less stress hormones, less uh, uh, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, better physical health. You actually get activation or release because when you help others, have you ever helped somebody and just felt joy? That feeling of joy is a release of dopamine. Dopamine not only causes you to feel joy in your, in your brain, it actually activates in healthy ways your immune system. So that you have better immune systems, you're more resilient and less, and less vulnerable to infection and disease. So there's all kinds of wonderful benefits physically to us when we help others. Now, what, what law would that be uh, in harmony with? 
the law of love. This is God's law, his design. Is it not so, isn't it amazing how we can actually look into science, we can look into our physiology, and we can see that when we actually apply God's design, there's actually all these healthy things that come from it. Is this an arbitrary God saying, look, if you do what I say, I will use my power to give you blessings. If you don't do what I say, I will use my power to punish you. No, it's not what's happening. When we follow God's design, the way the universe is constructed, it puts us in harmony with the actual health uh, uh, and life was designed to operate upon. When we step out of harmony with it, all pain, suffering, and consequences come. It's a natural thing. Other thoughts? Other ways? Exercise. Spend time with God's Word or God Okay, spend time. Spend time with Him. Now, does it matter what kind of person you believe God to be when you spend time with Him? Do you know people who are fastidious Bible studiers? Faithful prayer warriors who are ugly people? How could that be? It's about the God that worships. She said it's about the God they worship. Those who put Christ on the cross, why did they want him down as quickly as they wanted him down? Because they needed to worship God on Sabbath, right? Think this through. Who created the Sabbath? Christ. So they're killing the Creator. The subscription says He's Lord of the Sabbath. So they kill the Lord of the Sabbath so they can go home and worship the Lord of the Sabbath. Wait a minute. That's pretty twisted. How did that happen? How could they do that? They, they had their own preconceived idea of what that God was supposed to be, and He didn't fit the mold. What did Jesus say about them when they went out to evangelize, to convert people? What did he say? Yep, you guys both got it. It said, you search the world over to get a convert. When you get one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Wait a minute. Are we evangelizing people into hell? How would that be? We, we baptized them, right? They must be saved now. Is it only in that right relationship with, with God? Okay, what else? Love awakens love. Have you heard this? Love awakens love. When we experience someone genuinely loving us, we have love circuits awakened in our heart. And when we genuinely love other people, altruism, uh, giving, we actually have those same circuits strengthened. But, what if you come from an experience in which you were betrayed? in which you loved and trusted someone, and the person you loved and trusted betrayed you, took advantage of you, exploited you, and hurt you, what might happen the next time you experience someone trying to love you? Would it necessarily awaken love? What might be awakened instead? Fear and distrust. Because the person who's trying to love you this time is a bad person? Or because the person who you thought loved you the first time really didn't. Or at least they didn't love you more than they loved themselves. And this is the battle that we have in trusting people. If you want to know who can be trusted, this is the question you ultimately have to be able to answer. Does the person love me more than they love themselves? Peter, in the upper room, loved Jesus. He said, if everyone else denies you, I won't. I will give my life for you, Lord. Jesus said, before the cock crows, you're going to die me three times. When Peter said he would die for the Lord, was he lying to Jesus? Did he mean it? And the key issue here is Peter meant it. And he, did Peter love the Lord? But he still loved himself more. And so when push came to shove, 
and his life was being threatened, he was willing to sacrifice the Lord to save himself. Then he went out and wept bitterly and was converted. And that's what Jesus said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. He died to self and came to learn to love God and love others more than self. Now he could be trusted. In this life, there are people that we can tell love us to a certain degree. Peter did love the Lord. It wasn't fake. He did. But he didn't get up, up until that denial to the point where he loved the Lord more than himself. And that's the transformation that we all need that we come to love God and love others more than ourselves. And that's not easy. Yes? Wasn't Jesus himself actually confirming that when he was asking Peter later, he says, you love me, Peter. And he said, yes, you know, I love you. You love me, Peter. He kept on asking him and kept on using a different word. He finally got to the adoptation. You love me more than these. You know, he, I mean, he had to show Peter so Peter himself would understand that he loved Jesus more than Exactly. Yeah, excellent. So, loving others and then experiencing ourselves being loved and having the caveat, and I see this with patients all the time that uh, have been in abusive situations or exploitive situations, when somebody starts to get close to them, when somebody moves towards them in love, that they get frightened and they get anxious and they begin acting out. They'll be pushing back. They'll act out behaviorally, acting up. Uh, they'll, they will uh, somehow derail the relationship because it gets too intimate and scary because the person is getting too close to their heart because they've been hurt when they let people that close before. And so this is a problem. Some people do this over and over again in life. Want to be loved, long to be loved, but when it gets to a certain level, they get scared and they act out, push back, run away, end the relationship because it's frightening for them to let somebody get that close. What about theatrical television watching? Theatrical television watching activates the emotion centers which actually interferes with the love centers of the brain. Love centers are anterior the cortex, right behind the prefrontal cortex, where we have power of will, empathy, and so forth. Uh, the limbic system is where you experience irritability, fear, anxiety. This is what's activated during theatrical television watching. Now, did anybody see the movie Saving Private Ryan? I saw it. Anybody see it? Do you remember the opening beach scene, Normandy Landing? Remember that? Any of you who watched it, if they were at that moment in time to take your blood pressure, take your heart rate, draw blood catecholamine, those are stress hormone levels on you, all would be up because your brain was reacting to that stressor as if you were in a stressful, life-threatening situation. You're getting the same physiological brain and body reaction as if you were getting... This is what television does. Theatrical television causes us to go through the emotional cascade and the stress cascade as if we were in those circumstances. And that stress cascade is damaging to our brain and to our bodies. And so the more of that we watch, then the more difficult it is for us to develop that loving attitude and calm the fear circuits. What about worshiping a God of love? And you guys have heard this already. This is so cool. But meditating on a God of love 12 minutes a day causes the anterior cingulate cortex to grow stronger. With, with consequent calming of the fear centers with lower blood pressure, heart rate, catecholamine levels, well documented, 12 minutes a day, meditating on a God of love. Any other God concept, angry God, wrathful God, punitive God, causes the fear circuits to grow stronger, not the love circuits. It's powerful stuff. All right, Monday's lesson. How do we maintain and build the faith we have been given as a gift? What do you think? How do we maintain and build the faith we've been given as a gift? By exercising it, by using it. Let's explore what that is. Let's explore what that is. What is faith? Believe in what you know ain't so. 
Trusting what you do know. Trusting what you do know. Oh, I like that very much. Trusting what you do know. I like that very much. The Greek word translated in the Bible for faith is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. That's the word, when you read faith in your Bible, it's P-I-S-T-S. When you read another word in the Bible, in English, trust, and you look at the Greek, it's P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis, same word. When you read the word belief, the same word, pistis, is translated faith, belief, trust. One word, three English words. Now, when you think of the word have faith, when you think of I trust do they feel different to you? Which actually feels closer to your heart? Having faith or trusting? English language translation. Trust is a much closer accurate translation of the word P-I-S-T-I-S than faith. Trust is a heart connection where you actually trust someone or some situation. That, that is really the, the more accurate word. Um, so where can we get more of this faith or trust? Where can we get more of it? Romans chapter 10, 7. So faith, trust, comes from what is heard or hearing. And what is heard comes through the word of God or the word of Christ. Can somebody explain that to me? Faith comes from hearing. The more we hear about a trustworthy God, the more that trust we go. The more competently and evidentially that picture is developed for us, the more our trust will grow, because it would be a God who was trustworthy. Okay, so is he saying the more clearly the truth about God is explained in ways that are comprehensible and sensible, then the more easy it is for us to trust him because it makes sense. And the more that evidence is superimposed over the reality that we've experienced, the more you take that evidence of God's character and you connect it to what we know about life and the more we see them. Ah, so the application of, uh, of those truths, seeing it worked out in the real world, it get, enhances our confidence and trusting more. Yes? For instance, or read the story of David in the Bible and realize all that he did. He's more like me than anybody I know in the Bible. But yet he was a man after God's own heart. So that tells me that although he was a person that had sin in his life and everything, God still loved him. That makes me realize he is a God. I can love Have you ever heard people say we should believe because God said so? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You've heard that? Well, how do we deal with that in light of 1 Thessalonians 5.21? 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says this. Test everything. Hold on to that which is good. So does that sound like we should believe or should we test what we hear? Just believe because God said it or test what God says and then believe? How about this one? Proverbs 14, 15. A simple man believes every word he hears. A clever man understands the need for proof. A simple man believes, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's a simple man. A clever man understands the need for proof. That's New English Bible. Upon what we should base our faith? This is out of a book called Steps to Christ, page 105. Because sometimes we're told God expects us to believe because he commanded, because he spoke, because he said. Listen to these words. God never, how often? Never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. 
Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. What do you all think about that? Yes. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And to you know, anyone who likes food at all, it's evident that tasting is the proof of whether you're going to really uh, recognize that food as something good, recognize it as something good for you. Chocolate cake? <laughs> now, I work with a girl who's sort of uh, meat and potatoes, whatever, any kind of vegetables or any kind of nuts or anything. She doesn't like anything. Even if she eats a candy bar with almonds in it, she spits out the almonds because she doesn't think she's going to like them. So I've been gradually introducing her to new food, and she's, she's like, oh, I could, I could like this. Oh, this is pretty good. you know. But she confined herself to a little narrow band of food because she was unwilling to taste and see something. She just prejudged it. You, you triggered a thought, and when you get, get to Mike, in just a second. Uh, when I was in residency, there was a resident that I, I, I worked with who grew up in, in rural South Carolina. Um, country boy, nice guy, he was, res- was my best friend in residency. He liked to hunt all the time, and, and he was a big meat eater. And I was a vegetarian. And he, no, 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 no that veggie stuff. No, no, no. Well, one day I made. Um, vegetarian stuffed peppers with the ground, with the vegetarian like, like beef stuff and, and put, you know, uh, the, the proper spices and tomatoes and, and uh, veggie cheese and all this kind of stuff. And it's completely vegetarian. I brought him to the residency to work and I shared it with people at lunch. And he, 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 and he looked like, they looked like meat. Okay. So he had one he's eating. Oh, these are good. And he had a second one. He had a third one. And after he's eaten three of them, I said, you know, there was no meat in that. He goes, you're kidding. I, th- I thought vegetarian stuff would taste nasty. He goes, oh, vegetarian stuff, I could, I could eat this stuff. And so he actually gave vegetarian diet a try. Now, this, my friend, had terrible peptic reflux problems. He was eating Tums all the time and had migraines where he'd miss a couple days, at least a month, with bad migraines. Once he switched his diet, all his dyspepsia and his migraines went away. And he was like, vegetarianism, vegetarianism. And he was like telling everybody, everywhere he went, to get rid of that stuff. So anyway, yes, that, that expectation. Taste and see. Test it out. Give it, a, give it an experiment. You got nothing to lose. Go a few weeks and see what happens. Okay, Mike. Yeah, I was going to make the same point about, you know, God never asked us to believe and trust him without giving us proof first. When I first got, when I was getting baptized into this church, when I was first coming into it, there was the, the problem down in Jonestown, down in Guyana, with Jim Jones, who was a minister. Mm-hmm. And he could twist the word, the words of scripture, along with his own interpretations, and he got people who believed him blindly. And I remember reading about what happened with the Kool Aid. So, you know, and, and I used to, when I used to teach, them, don't drink the Kool Aid. Yes. And if you believe blindly, that's what you're going to end up doing. You're going to end up drinking somebody's Kool Aid. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Whether it's there or 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 David Koresh and the Branch Davidians or or someplace like that. It's a great point. Does it matter? And of course, you know, this is a rhetorical question. Does it matter in what we place our faith? Of course it does. Yes, it's a rhetorical question. Um, But where does sincerity come in? What if a person sincerely believes the lie? But they're sincere. They're honest of heart in their belief in the lie. What about that? It's still a lie. It's still a lie. Well, that's what Saul of Tarsus was. Again, I'm a convert. No. No, I agree with you. Saul Tarsus? I was a true believer. You know, until, until I eventually was, con- was converted in another way. And, and, and a lot, there are a lot of people in other churches who we can be reaching 
who are true believers. They just need to be redirected and shown a different way. Saul of Tarsus being a prime example in the scripture. He was a true believer, and that's why Jesus could use him. I was at a uh, conference at Harvard University on spirituality and medicine a few years back. And at the conference... They had about 1,300 people in attendance, and they had uh, speakers from all different religious backgrounds. They had Catholic, Protestant, Church of Christ, um, uh, Church of Scientology, Christian Science, Buddhism, Jew, Muslim. They had all these different speakers there uh, talking about how their spirituality and health and, and, and stuff related. And then about three-quarters of the way through the conference, a lady gets up to the mic in the audience and said, I want you to know that I am here at the Spirituality and Health Conference representing the Wiccans, those of us who practice white witchcraft. Our religion is based on the ancient pagan religions of ancient Europe. They're earth-based and nature-based. And at that moment, one of the only times the whole weekend, the entire room erupted into thunderous applause. And I looked around. I was going like, whoa. So I meandered up to the microphone, and I said, while I want to affirm this group's freedom of religion and respecting of individual conscience, that we leave every person to be fully persuaded in their own mind. Isn't that true? We want to affirm that, don't we? Yes, I want to affirm that, that we respect the individuality for a person to choose their beliefs for themselves. We shouldn't mistake that healthy position with the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy. They're not. I had a patient who believes that cigarette smoking helps her breathe better. Now, she's free to believe that, isn't she? But that isn't the same as believing cigarette smoking damages your lungs. Sincerity in one's belief doesn't actually make the belief healthy if the belief is unhealthy. Yes? Driving down the road in a direction that you believe to be correct does not necessarily mean you'll get to your destination. <laughs> you know, and, and it's selected, uh, selected messages, they're just, just perfect time. Selected messages, volume 2, page 56. Listen to this, because I think that he uses the exact analogy she does. Says, Faith in a lie will not have a sanctifying influence upon the life or character. No error is truth or can, or can be made truth by repetition or by faith in it. Sincerity will never save a soul from the consequences of believing in error. Without sincerity, there's no true religion, but sincerity in a false religion will, not save, will never save a man. I, I may be perfectly sincere in following a wrong road, there we go, but that will not make it the right road or bring me to the place I wish to re- reach. The Lord does not want us to have blind credulity and call that faith that sanctifies. The truth is the principle that sanctifies, and therefore it becomes us to know what is truth. We must compare spiritual things with spiritual. We must prove all things, but hold fast only to that which is good that which bears the divine credentials, which lays before us the true motives and principles which should prompt us to action. Do you like it? Isn't that a balanced statement? I love these balanced statements because it has real practical application to our life today, doesn't it? So how do we get more faith? First step. What's first step in getting more faith? Exercise. Hmm. Learn about God. Ah, first step. Don't you have to be presented with enough evidence of the trustworthiness of God that you're willing to then trust him. If you don't have enough evidence of God's trustworthiness presented to you, will you trust him? Let's say you're at the mall. Somebody comes up to you, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, let me have the keys to your car and keys to your house. You can trust me. You never met him before. Would you give him the keys to your car and house? If you can't trust a stranger with the keys to your car and house, well, how can you trust a stranger with the keys to your life? First step, we have to get to know at least enough evidence about God that we can say, I find him trustworthy. 
That's the first step, isn't it? That's why the truth sets free. That's why blessed are those who bring the gospel, because if the gospel isn't brought, they won't hear. You see, they have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. But faith comes by hearing, hearing in the word. We have to present the truth enough that people can then begin to exercise. And then the next step is to exercise faith or to put our life in trust. Isn't that what happens? Scripture says we're all given a a measure of faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? We're actually all given a measure of faith that we all have trust in God, all of us? Or we all have the capacity for trust in God? We'll have a desire to find God trustworthy. I think it's kind of like the Holy Spirit working in life. All good things come from the Holy Spirit. Whether right. you accept that and exercise that, it doesn't continue. But you can choose to do bad. So we all have the capacity right to trust God. We all have a need to search for something. We're all looking for something. Some people look in the wrong places for So this exercising of faith, what is it we are to put in God's hands? What are we to trust him with? Our lives. Our lives. So do we... Tr- don't laugh at me now. Does that mean we trust him with what grades we get in school? Go into school, haven't studied all week. Father, please give me wisdom to make a good grade on this exam today. I trust you. You, you promised in, in James chapter, chapter 1 there that all who ask for wisdom will be given wisdom. And I trust you, Father, to give me that wisdom so I can make a good grade today. I haven't studied all week. So what do we trust him with? We can trust him to do his best for us, which includes helping us to understand reality. Okay, so in that case, we didn't study all week and we prayed for wisdom. God will answer that prayer. We will get an F. And that F will help us learn, not preparing and not studying, you don't pass. That's wisdom. We've just gotten more wisdom, haven't we? You see, our prayer would be answered. Isn't that right? Sure it is. Behavior has consequences. That's wisdom. Learn that lesson. Behavior has consequences. People that are unwise don't know that. Yeah, you know, I, I had a similar thing happen to me when I was in the first year when I was you know, in med school. Med school. I had a person who I was studying with who couldn't believe that from Friday night to Saturday night, I didn't touch a book. I took a whole 24 um, hours off. And he swore at me that you're going to fail, you're going to have a hard time. I said, the Lord's got me good here. He's got me here this far. He'll take me the rest of the way. Well, as it turned out, he had problems. He had major problems. In fact, he ended up being come back here. I never had an academic problem. I never had to cheat on the Sabbath. One day, one time I was in school. Now, do you like that story? Yeah, what do we find him trusting God with? Did, did, did he say he didn't study? No. He said he didn't study on the Sabbath. So, do, is it our responsibility to fulfill the duties that rest with us? Is it our responsibility to control how life turns out? So, what do we trust God with? Outcomes. Outcomes. You notice how, just think this through. How much are we worrying about how things are going to turn out all the time? Am I going to get that job? Am I going to get that girl? Am I going to get that guy? Am I going to live here? Am I going to go there? Am I going to sell this property? Am I going to get that investment? My stock go up, my stock go down. We're always worrying about how life turns out rather than saying, wait a minute, what is my duty for today? I will, I, my duty is to study. My duty is to take 24 hours aside and spend with the Lord. What is my duty? What is my response? I will fulfill my duty. I will trust God with the outcome. 
Do we see examples of this in Scripture? You have a comment. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one example that I think uh, helps me understand it best is when Jesus tells the man to get up and walk. It's like even if Jesus had healed him and he hadn't stood up, it wouldn't matter. Was it the man's responsibility to heal his physical body? But when, when his physical body was healed, did he have a responsibility to actually exercise it? Yes. To choose to move. Right. See, there, we, we share a responsibility with God, don't we? It's within our responsibility to brush our teeth. If we don't brush our teeth and pray every day for healthy teeth, what happens? Yeah. God will faithfully allow us to get cavities. Mm-hmm. So... The lesson talks in, in uh, Tuesday's lesson about believing without seeing. Think about that, believing without seeing. This is out of Review and Herald, April 1, 1875. There are many who fail to distinguish between the rashness of presumption and the intelligent confidence of faith. God has given man precious promises upon conditions of faith and obedience, but they are not to sustain him in any rash act. If men needlessly place themselves in peril and go where God does not require them to go and self-confidently expose themselves to danger regarding the dictates, disregarding the dictates of reason, notice that, disregarding the dictates of reason, God will not work a miracle to relieve them. He will not send his angels to preserve any from being burned if they choose to place themselves in the fire. Analogy, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and again, Bendigo didn't say, hey, I trust God, he can protect me, let's go jump in the fire. No, they were thrown in against their will, and God chose to preserve them. What would have happened if they would have just willy-nilly jumped in? They'd have gotten burned. What, it, and their getting burned wouldn't have diminished God's ability to protect them. But God respects our freedoms to make choices. Signs of the Times of 730, 1886. Here is a test which all may apply if they will. None need be left in uncertainty and doubt. There is always sufficient evidence upon which to base an intelligent faith. Boy, have you ever thought of faith being evidence-based and intelligent? That's what it's supposed to be. And then, what about experience? Where does experience come in? Is experience part of what we base our faith upon? What is experience? Have you ever had somebody who has a religious experience? They went to a particular faith worship group. They had a powerful movement of the Spirit that moved them with exhilarating joy and warm feelings. And they had a personal experience, and that personal experience is the evidence that they use. you ever done any Bible studies with someone who's a Mormon? Have you ever found it to be a little bit frustrating? I'll tell you the secret. If you ever want to do a Bible study with a Mormon, here's the secret. Here's how they present themselves. They will present themselves as believing in the King James Version of the Bible. So they will study King James Version of the Bible with you. What they don't tell you is how they determine truth. What is the methodology upon which they determine truth? So when you present the King James of the Bible, you study some aspect, you show them from Scripture, maybe they've never seen it before, and because truth has a resonating quality with it, you will see a genuine sense, oh wow, I've never seen that before. That's, that's, and you can see the, the truth burning within them as the men on the road to Emmaus did. And they will say this to you. Well, let me go home and pray about it. And you think, well, that's wonderful. Go home and pray, right? Because that's what we do. We pray, and when we pray, what do we pray for? We pray for enlightenment. We pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for the ability to, to weigh the right from the wrong and tell the differences, right? To, to think through the issues. That's what we pray for. It's not what they pray for. In the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moroni, chapter 10, verse 4, it says, If you would pray with a 
a sincere heart, with real intent, uh, to know the truth of these things. You may know the truth of all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what this means to them is this. How do you know, how can you tell whether something's true? You go to your prayer closet and you pray long and hard until you get a feeling of conviction. And it's the feeling of conviction, which is the Holy Spirit, giving you a feeling of what's right and wrong. It's not evidence-based. It's not truth-based. It's not comparing facts and evidences with Scripture. It is emotion-based, which the Scripture tells us our emotions lead us into temptation. And so this is why it's very frustrating. They will come back the next day after a long prayer, and they'll say, you know, I prayed about this, but now I'm convinced you're wrong. You say, well, well, what did I miss? Show me from Scripture. Well, I, I, I don't have anything to show you. I just know that I've been convicted by the Spirit that you're wrong. This is experience. This is what they call experience. What do you think about this kind of experience? How's your experience, not just your day-to-day? Let me read to you out of um, Review and Herald, 20, uh, July 27, 1886, about experience. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea as to what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits. The results are marked with careful solicitude. That which may Many term experience is not experience at all. There has been, a, there has not been a fair trial by actual experiment and through thorough investigation with the knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Now, what is she describing here? Science. Science. This is what science is: careful experiments, uh, looking from cause to effect, understanding the principles, having a mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled from, uh, by previous opinions and biases, that we have gained a variety of careful experiments, and we go, and we experiment, we actually experiment with things. And look and watch to see the consequences, the results. Have you ever thought about that when you think about religious things? How many of us, the scripture says, te- test, test the Lord. It's talking, have experiments. This is real experience. That other thing I just described wasn't real experience, was it? No. Not at all. How many of you do this with your spiritual life? Actually think about a way to experiment. I used to feel guilty for wanting it to be that way. <clears throat> wanting it to be evidence-based. And, and Aren't you feeling free and joyful? <laughs> Back over here, Mike gave us an example of an experiment. He was in med school. He was told, he understood that, that the Sabbath was the day of the Lord. He made a choice to experiment. Whether he realized it or not, he made a choice to, to surrender to the Lord and not worship, uh, not, not study 24 hours every week. And then he had results from that experiment. And what were the results? Success. Better outcome. And neurophysiologically, 24 hours, this is one of the things I teach my patients. I have so many patients that come to me completely worn out and exhausted. And I ask them, while it's true we need physiological sleep for our bodies, do you take 24 hours aside each week to rest your mind? To lay aside the burdens? To put aside the worries? To stop the work? To stop the hectic, frantic, trying to keep the house clean and do the laundry and get the groceries and pay the bills? And Do you put all that aside 24 hours every, every week and let the mind relax, unwind, and rest and think about something out of a higher nature, a grander reality? Do you do that? No, oh, of course they don't. 
They might go to church for a few hours on Sunday morning, but then it's right back to the grind. Do you know there's a restorative healing process to our physiology and our humanity when we can put our problems aside 24 hours every week and rest? Rest the mind. So Mike was resting, and his mind was sharper and clearer and more efficient, and he could learn better. There's an experiment. Do we actually take these principles and experiment? Should we? Can you think of ways? Yes, in the back. Well, one way I can think about uh, doing this kind of thing is like for having experimenting with stuff is I'll think of something that either is on a blog or a web something or just some question that at first seems like, it seems logical, but it seems sacrilegious at the same time. You have to dive into your Bible and try to figure out if it makes sense or if you can disprove it. And I find if you go into the Bible and really try to disprove or prove something, that it really helps your understanding. I think God's very faithful when, uh, when we do test them. Uh, when my kids were just learning about money and being responsible for themselves and then introduce tithing to them, you know, that's kind of a tricky thing with kids, you know, I've got to get some of my money away, but uh, my oldest daughter, when she started doing that, she started finding out she, she picked up more work, more jobs, and at the end of the day, God had blessed her more than she had ever thought, and that left a lasting impression on her, the value of being faithful to God with the things that he's given her, and, uh, I think, I think it's a great experiment. Uh, Malachi, bring up, be faithful to your tithes. You'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing more than you can receive. I, I think when we're children, that God meets us where we are. And when we're children, we see exactly, and this is what I, I saw the same thing when I was a kid. We were taught to tithe. That when we tithe, we actually had more money. But when we grow up, we realize that when we tithe, it's not just money God blesses us with. God blesses us with a greater capacity to love. We actually get a greater giving of our heart. Our characters get transferred. We get a greater outpouring of the Spirit. And that's worth a lot more than money. But it starts yeah. with that little woman. I, you, you, I can see the evidence of that, uh, you know, that growth as she gets older, too. I mean, it's, but it's just interesting. Like you said, testing, you know, that, that's the beginning way to develop that faith in God because He is faithful at whatever level that you... Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, we had a program in college here called the Good News Tour. And leading up to that event, um, just before that event, I got really bad pneumonia. And I was in bed with terrible fevers and chills and, and sweats and shakes and nausea and dizziness. And, uh, you know, I said, Lord, if you want me to uh, present and you're going to have... And I got up and did both my programs, didn't cough once in both programs, went back to bed and was sick. The Lord sustained me through that. More recently... Uh, last November, I was in um, Portland, and I flew out to Portland on a Friday. I'm going to give six, six lectures about from nine, 10 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon at a church in Portland. At 2 o'clock Friday night, I woke up in severe pain, and I had a kidney stone. I ended up having to go to the ER, and I was nauseated, vomiting, in terrible shape. They gave me um, drugs. They didn't fix the stone. They just gave me some pain meds and stuff. Um, I, went, I got back to the to the hotel like at 3.30 in the morning. Got up at 8.30, vomited, sick, vomited. I was vomiting, and my, my first talk starts at 10. I was vomiting at 9.30, and I prayed, Lord, if you want me to do this, then you're going to have to save me. And I, I, the guy came and got me, and I drove over there. I got up at 10 o'clock, did all those programs all the way till 5.30, didn't have any pain, didn't have any nausea, got back to my room at 6, vomited eight times in a row, was in cruciating pain again. Okay? Um, yeah, I would call that testing the Lord. I mean, he provided. 
and he intervened. And I think this was an so I have confidence that he will open the ways and when the message needs to go forward, make it happen. Yes. Uh, let me use tie it because it's, we just talked about it, but I think this applies to other instances as well. Will a person, will my person not receive the blessings that we mentioned from tithe if they are giving tithe to receive those blessings? Yeah, the, what's the scripture the Lord loves? A cheerful, cheerful giver. The Lord doesn't love a giver. So you can give in order to give. That's cheerful. Give in order to give. Give because you love. And you can give in order to get. Remember those out there with the big scene, pouring all their money in. Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not a sinner like this publican over here. Giving in order to get recognition, get a seat on the school board, get um, you know whatever it is we're giving for at the church, uh, getting our own way, or we're giving in order to give. Giving in order to give blesses the person, whether it's monetarily or otherwise the heart changes and we grow more like Christ. So yeah, if you're giving in order to get, you get more fearful and you get more irritated. If you don't get what you want, you get mad for giving. And this can happen on all levels, not just in tithing. Okay, husbands, you've decided you're going to clean the kitchen for your wife. She's been working really hard. She cleaned the kitchen and she comes home and she's tired. She goes right to bed and you go, didn't you notice I cleaned the kitchen? See if I ever cleaned it for you again. Did you clean it for her? Did you clean it for your praise? Okay, yes. We also have to realize that we live in a broken world and Christ said, in the world you'll have trouble. You know, but be a, be a good cheer, I don't become the world. Just because we do all the right things does not mean that outcome will be wonderful here. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much, Wendell, for pointing that out to us. That's right. And this is why um, we have to always enlarge our perspective. Step back and look at the larger view. The apostles of Christ, only John died of old age. All the rest were martyred. All the rest. Is that because, is that because they had small faith? And if you look at the miracles of Scripture, are the miracles given for people whose faith is great or for people whose faith is weak? Weak. Get, get straight on this. The popular teaching today is, if you pray for a miracle and don't get one, it's because your faith is weak. Not true. Gideon needed the miracle of the fleece because when God called him, his faith was strong or his faith was weak and needed encouraging. When Elijah, a man great in faith, called down fire from heaven, was the miracle for Elijah, or was it for all the people who had no faith in God? What was the miracle for? Who was it for? For the people. The, the apostles who were men of great faith, did God miraculously intervene other than with John? No, they all died martyrs. So we should not look at miracles as evidence of great faith or not great faith. Oftentimes, you'll find that the miracles happen for the weak in faith. Often through the great in faith, the apostles did many miracles, but the miracles weren't for them. The miracles were for the weak in faith. And as we get stronger in faith, we often find our trust. We don't need the bolstering of miracles anymore. We know God. We don't have to have a miracle to be confident in him anymore. And so often the miracles no longer sustain us. Job, a man who was righteous and perfect in all his ways, had no miracle to deliver him from all of his traumas. And we see this all through scripture. So get, don't, don't let the popular teaching confuse you on that. And it doesn't mean that God can't, for the great in faith, provide miracles. Look at Hezekiah. Hezekiah got a miracle, and he was a man of great faith. So he can, but we shouldn't judge our faith based on whether a miracle occurs or a miracle doesn't occur. Daniel's three friends were saved because of their faith, but it wasn't for them that the miracle was done. That's right. It was done for Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. The miracle wasn't for them. It was for Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided evidence that appeals to our judgment and reason, that you haven't simply, from a position of power, said, believe or else. You don't coerce, you don't threaten, you don't want us to believe blindly, but you provide us the evidence that you are trustworthy and our faith is in you, not in the next event around the corner of our life. And regardless of the next event around the corner of our life, may we fix our eyes on you knowing that you are going to work out the ultimate outcome for your good and your glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen.